Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Today, we're talking about an airplane, helicopter, I don't know, sunshine. What do we call this thing? <laughs> Let's call it a transformer. I don't know, dude. Let's call uh, it awesome. <laughs> outstanding. Well, I am your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. Joining me is Brian Sinclair, Sunshine. How you doing, buddy? Doing well, man. Hey, Jello. So this past week, I know uh, you celebrated your father's life, right, with the funeral. How did that go? Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's been a couple weeks since you and I have been on the air because we recorded both parts of the F4 and then split that up. So it's been a little while. It went really well. Thank you. We Good. laid him to rest, as I said before, in Los Angeles at the National Cemetery just off 405 next to UCLA. And all the family showed up. We had a great ceremony there with the flag folding by an army detail and taps, which was very touching. And then we went and had a reception all afternoon and celebrated. So, yeah, it was a really good time. I appreciate you asking. And, of course, now my sister is still dealing with his estate. And okay. that will take some time. But we, we laid him to rest. And I guess it's pretty much the closure, you know? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear there was good closure. The whole family was there. So it's as good a situation as possible, right? Yep, indeed. Well, yeah, speaking of that, like I said, it's been a couple of weeks. Now, the Top Gun Maverick trailer came out since we <laughs> recorded last time. Mm -hmm. And boy, that has caused some churn, hasn't it? I ended up releasing a behind the scenes on it, and my 18-year-old son came in, and he said, Dad, name it this. And it went crazy. It, Did you see how many downloads it yeah, had? Yeah, it went viral, dude. I love it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So then I changed it back because I don't know how much detail we want to get into this, but the military liaison to Paramount was a guest on this show. And he called me up. He's like, hey, dude, you probably need to be careful because they don't want, you know, in case you say anything negative and it affects ticket sales, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I, we got to figure out, we got to get our heads together on how we are going to approach this upcoming show because we don't want to get in any trouble, but we do want to celebrate its release. I think it'll be hopefully a really good movie. I think it will. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's a big investment on Paramount. And actually, I, I talked to a Paramount rep too. And uh, mum is the word until about two weeks after the release. <laughs> okay. Well, you especially, since we've, as <laughs> we've said before here, you've had a little more uh, toe in the water than I have. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. So, hey, we had some great feedback on our last episode, as we always do. And there's one I have to share. This is from Craig Cook. Okay. Now, he is a former Air Force airman who worked on munitions. And he says, quote, please don't ever, ever, all caps, say bullets <laughs> again when referring to an aircraft's cannon rounds. Refer to them as rounds, complete rounds, or in terms of other various components, such as cartridge, case, projectile, gas rings, etc." All right, Craig, you got me on that one, <laughs> well, but I mean, well, I don't know. Well, hold on. Yeah, I totally, <laughs> totally respect you, Craig, there. But I got to say, as pilots, kind of part of a bravado, right, is to downplay things. So um, mm. bullets is what we call our rounds. The boat is what we call the aircraft carrier, right? And a jet. Yeah, that is, giant ship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we call everything a jet, even if it's a helicopter. I remember in my brief saying, okay, we're going to walk to the jet, and it was a helicopter, and we just kept kept on rolling with it. So <laughs> let's just say there's a lot of generalizations. So totally get Craig's uh, okay. point, but, you know, 
I think a lot of the, the pilots here do generalize. That's true. But now, Sunshine, you and I are in the public domain in a sense. So we, we do want to be as accurate as possible, <laughs> but we also want to accurately reflect pilots. Yep. So it's a, yep. it's a very fine line. I do. And I tip my hat to Craig. So thanks for that. We also had, okay. some, we also had some feedback from the SR-71 episode a while ago with, when Brian was on the show. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah and this, was, uh, this is very, a, a very detailed uh, correction, and I appreciate that. So thinking back to Kelly Johnson's you know, skunk, war, uh, skunk work excuse me, project there, the A-12, the A doesn't stand for attack as in following the standard convention. It was actually the, oh. yeah, it was the 12th project under the Archangel design. And so we got, we got corrected by a listener on that, the Archangel design from the CIA, excuse me. So A-12 means the 12th project of Archangel under the um, CIA program. So once again, thank you very much for that. Just uh, good feedback. Oh, okay. So I get it. In other words, I was thinking A, attack, B, bomber, C, cargo kind of thing. But in this case, it's the Archangel, and they went through, what, 10 or 11 drawings before they finally settled on what we know as the Blackbird? Yeah, or at least 10 or 11 projects before that, yeah, is named oh. Archangel. Ooh. So you got it. Exactly okay. right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so right. great feedback. So the CIA convention is, excuse me, the CIA naming does not follow the traditional Navy Air Force ah. convention. There you go, for designations. Okay. Yeah. Well, we like to learn things here, and the listeners keep us on our toes. So, as always, thanks for that. Absolutely. All right. In other announcements, our Patreon page has undergone a significant restructuring, as we alluded to in a couple episodes last month. So, I invite everyone to head on over and check it out. And without going into too much detail, we consolidated some tiers. We've offered some new perks, and we changed a bunch of pictures and the format and what it looks like. We're still working on an intro video. I need to get that hashed out and put on there, but I think it's a real success so far. People are particularly excited about the new level that we have that will offer some perks for our DCS folks in the crowd, including access to our new server, as well as some exclusive articles that nice. I've written in the past. And okay. Maybe we can get you to pen a couple as well, and we'll put those <laughs> on there a little bit more in depth than what you get on our musings page now. So go check that out, particularly if you enjoy exclusive content, and it also helps support the show. Thanks. Yeah, and thank you once again again, for all of your contributions, all of our uh, Patreons, we'll call them. For sure. All right, Sunshine, well, let's get to some listener questions. We're all right. have time, I think, this week, and if we don't, they tend to build up. So we've got two emails and two phone calls, and if it's all right with you, I'm going to hit you with an email first. Perfect. Go for it. All right. This is from Cam Nichols. He's a Patreon supporter, so he enjoys head-of-line privileges with his questions. He says, fuel considerations aside, what rules and regulations do you typically have to follow in relation to supersonic flight? I assume they were mostly around population density and air traffic and that it wasn't just a free-for-all. And I think it's worth mentioning here, Sunshine, that I assume he means in training. I think in combat, all bets are off. Yeah, great point. Combat, all bets are off. And ideally, we're not performing combat over the continental United States. So, hey, Cam, thank you very much for your question. Uh, totally with you. understand what you're saying. And there are very strict Federal Aviation Administration FAA rules on supersonic overflight in above, I should say, the continental United States. So because of noise abatement, as you can imagine, so as you go trans, the supersonic, you generate those shock waves. The shock waves can propagate all the way to the ground. That pressure difference that they create can actually blow windows out, right, if it's real extreme. So it is a big deal. And the the rule of thumb, we'll say, in the continental United States is no supersonic flight. Now, there are some exceptions. Uh, For me, specifically, it was over uh, Edwards Air Force Base. We have high-altitude supersonic corridors, they're up high enough that the shockwave, as it propagates back to the ground, will cause thumping. And sometimes it would be in the afternoon when the kids are sleeping and you get their naps. So my wife got a little annoyed at that, but it wouldn't break any windows. So, and also there's another rule that uh, so many 
miles off the coast, it's okay to go supersonic. And the idea is you want to try not to point the jet at population centers, because if you point the jet at population centers, then those shockwaves can propagate to the, the land and kind of make landfall, I should say. And that's where you can have an issue. And Jello, how about you? Do you have any experience with supersonic quarters? Well, I have a friend who on his retirement flight knew that if he was far enough off the coast and pointed at the audience, he could let us know that he was coming home soon. But anyway, moving I think on. we talked about that yeah, we did. before on the show. Now, to your point, overland, usually it's if it's very desolate, uh, like the desert around Edwards. I've used that airspace, by the way, on post-maintenance check flights where we have to do a mock run. Yeah. And then up in Fallon, there is a part of the Fallon Range Complex that is mostly away from anything, maybe onesie-twosie farmers and ranchers. But we are allowed supersonic, I believe, above 11,000 feet oh, up to the okay. top of the airspace. And the idea was that in there, you could do the tactical training that you do require. And so at times you would fly supersonic, but for the most part, I mean, you really don't think about it. I remember I took someone, I forget who it was. It might've been like a helo guy or somebody for a ride. And I kind of made fun. I was like, all right, we're going to go supersonic. You ready? He goes, yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, watch, watch this number in the HUD and the repeater on your Woo-hoo! DVI, Yay. you know, yeah. 0.98, 0.99, <laughs> 1.0, 1.01. And he goes, that's it. So yep, yeah, that's, that's it. it. It's, it's yeah. not that exciting for us. No, so. and you know what? Actually, uh, Mia Culpa here. One time, I was over a non-supersonic area or in a non-supersonic area. It was a mm. slick Rhino, and I actually set in the blowers, and then I'm sorry, I set I set it to mill, and then I looked down to take some notes. And as I'm scribbling, I look up in the heads-up display there, and I see 1.01, and it was it was China Lake. It was just east of China Lake, near near that mm. accident, unfortunately. And uh, up at altitude. But uh, if we do violate IEGO supersonic in a non-supersonic area, there's actually a report, right, that the Navy makes us fill out. And it's just going to be a time of lat long, if you will, so position and an altitude. And that way they have it on file just in case anybody calls with noise complaints. That's right. And speaking of that, we didn't really talk about in the announcements, but I think everybody is aware who follows this that the Navy community lost a lieutenant from Lemoore recently in Star Wars Canyon. And our, our friends at the Wingman Foundation have responded to that, and we're trying to help promote that as best we can. So, yeah, tragic times. That came on the Wednesday, Sunshine, of the Friday that I was laying my father to rest. Oh. And on Sunday, mm-hmm. my wife's very good friend who's been battling cancer for years finally succumbed. So oh, it's been a rough, rough few days yeah, no for kidding, us. Dude. But no I kidding. didn't know the uh, kid Walker, I think it was his last name from Lamore. Did you happen to know? Yeah, uh, no, I uh, I trained him once. Uh, so I've oh, really? yeah, interacted oh. with him just with my uh, my current job. So I know oh, him. Yeah, okay. I, just, I knew him casually and uh, just a great American as, as most uh, of them are, you yeah. know, so... A sad day. Yep. He left behind a wife. He survived by a wife. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, that stinks. All right. All right. So, well, why don't we move on and yeah. try to keep this upbeat? Yeah, so sure let's thing. take a phone call. <laughs> let's take a phone call. Hello. My name's Joshua Altman. I'm out of uh, Williamstown, Kentucky. I'm a former aviation machinist mate. I served from 04 to 2008. Um, I just wanted to ask the question because of what's going on with Iran and the Straits of uh, Hamoos. Would you say that an aircraft carrier is becoming obsolete in the modern uh, age of military and warfare? What I'm trying to get at is like when I was in the Persian Gulf on the Truman, I used to see it when I was on the flight deck, the little speedboats and stuff. Like they could do swarm tactics to swarm us with as many missiles as possible and possibly take that aircraft carrier out. I just wanted your opinion on this. I know we have the best Navy in the world. I'm not questioning that. It's just... 
I want to know from a realistic standpoint, just looking at for what it is, are, are they starting to lag behind on times? I appreciate it. Uh, the podcast is awesome. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Thank you, Joshua. I think this is a valid question, but Sunshine, I think they've been asking this since aircraft carriers came into existence. <laughs> I agree. And, and I don't mean to, yeah, I don't mean to, to say we don't have to answer it for that reason, but no, I don't think the age of the aircraft carrier is over. I would say it is still four and a half acres of American sovereignty that you can put off the coast of anywhere. And it has the ability to launch and recover fixed and rotary wing aircraft and fly in international airspace and strike targets from a long range. And so the fact that there are threats to the carrier is nothing new. In fact, I would argue the swarm tactic of many small boats with ordnance is relatively caveman. I mean, it's the sea skimming supersonic cruise missiles that are the real issue. So I don't think just because of the threat that you mentioned, Joshua, that the carrier is obsolete. I think it's still a very viable and important weapon in the American arsenal. Yeah, great point, Jella. It's definitely still very relevant when it comes to power projection. But just like you mentioned earlier, the vulnerability. So specifically in that strategic bottleneck that we call the Strait of Hormuz, right? And the Strait of Hormuz, for the folks that uh, need a little brushing up on the, their uh, geography, is going to be at the base of the Persian Gulf, right? Where to the north side of it will be Iran, to the south side of it will be the UAE and Oman. And at its most narrow point, it's only 21 miles wide, and the navigable water through there is only like two miles wide in each direction or something. So there is a bottleneck, if you will, that through there. So the carrier has to travel through that area, and that's where they talk about the swarm tactics and whatnot. But most importantly, and you kind of touched on it earlier, Jello, is that the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy, they're responsible for projecting Iran's presence and kind of interest in the Persian Gulf and specifically the, the Strait of Hormuz there. And they do have those C-802s that you talked about earlier, those subsonic cruise missiles, right? The Ch- they were bought mm-hmm. by the Chinese and reverse engineered, so now the Iranians make their own. I think they call them the Cater. So it's still mm. still a very relevant piece of gear, the carrier, but it is very vulnerable. And it's somewhat the defense is going to be just backed up by strategic implications, right? So if Iran sinks a carrier, there's going to be quite a price to pay. Oh, yeah. No doubt about yeah. that. And I would argue almost any weapon system has vulnerabilities. Certainly a Mark I motto soldier does. Tanks even have vulnerabilities. So it just comes with the territory, I would say. Yeah, it good absolutely does. Though. Yeah, very good question. Then we'll move on to, do um, you want to do Austin's question next? Yeah, let me put that one to you. How about this is Austin Wright. He's from Boise, Idaho. He says, how do you plan what ordinance to take for a routine close air support mission overseas? For example, where you don't quite know what you'll be tasked with. Are you provided with a variety of solutions just in case you need to adapt to a certain scenario? Example, carrying a JDAM, a full gun, and maybe a laser maverick. So I don't know about you, Sunshine, but this is what we used to do all the time, patrolling over Iraq and Afghanistan, although I personally never flew over Afghanistan. But I don't know. What do you think about Austin's question here? Yeah, so Austin, thank you very much for the question and listening. And uh, honestly, I love Boise. So I got some relatives up there in Nampa, which is close by. Ah, So yeah, Nampa, Meridian, Boise, all love that area. But I digress. So anyway, yeah, I've flown over Iraq and Afghanistan, and we had something called a standard conventional loadout, an SCL. And that was going to be kind of the Mark I Mod Zero loadout for each of the Hornets as they go in specifically for XCAS or uh, CAS on call, we'll call it. And uh, I traditionally carried the AGM-65 Echo laser, right, the laser-guided one. I had a GBU-38, the 500-pound JDAM, the GBU-12, 
the 500-pound uh, Paveway or laser-guided bomb, and then uh, a nose full of bullets. And that predominantly was dictated on the target sets. So what I mean by that is what things do we probably or possibly need to blow up in country? And we would use our JMEMS, which is the Joint Munitions Effectiveness Manual, and the target tiers and all their training. They would figure out the target sets, figure out what weapons were needed to destroy to a certain level the targets, and then they would uh, basically use those weapons as one of the factors. They'd also look at the inventory. So make sure the carrier has enough of certain types of weapons in the magazine, and then they would make sure you know they'd use those stores, obviously, on the uh, aircraft themselves. Another thing was environmental. So the reason you have a laser-guided bomb as well as a JDAM, well, in the Persian Gulf, you can have sandstorms, and you can have different ways that would basically obscure the conditions visually, and that would inhibit the laser use, and that way you could use the JDAM if need be. So there's kind of a flexibility both on environmentals and on target sets. And then also the targeteers, I failed to mention earlier, they look at the JMEMs, they're going to look at their training on how to blow things up. Collateral damage, that is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so collateral damage estimates are going to be huge when it comes into rules of engagement or ROE, or the bigger picture, they call it the law of armed conflict, right, LOAC. So those, uh, those factors, if you will, collateral damage estimates, environmentals, uh, carrier inventory, what's available, and also the target sets, I think played big factors into selection of the standard conventional loadout. Jello, do you have anything to add? The only thing I would add is that you have to also decide what is the likelihood of employing these weapons, because if you don't, then there's the bring back consideration. So you and your rhino can bring back more than I can in my Hornet, and so we will load differently in that regard because you have to have so much fuel. We've talked about that before on the show. Yeah, that's that's a huge point. Yeah, the only thing I want to point out, and I'm, I don't mean to point out something that you said that I think is wrong, but oh. just the way that you said something, I just want to make sure, because you said I would normally carry, and so it's not necessarily pilot preference, right? Oh, no, that's it's a great more point. Of like a squadron standard? Yeah, or an air wing standard. My apologies. And it, okay. Yeah, and it's probably going to be a theater standard, right? So any anytime mm-hmm. a carrier comes into the AOR, the air wing comes into the area of responsibility, they're going to be issued probably a, a, an SCL, standard conventional loadout, based on those factors okay. and lessons learned. Yeah, good call. Yep. All right. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't trying to point out a flaw, just in case someone interpreted it. No, I'm totally with you, dude. All right. You want to roll into the phone call next from Jordan? Sure. How about one more phone call? We'll wrap up the Q&A session. Cool. Hey, Jello. My name is Jordan. I'm calling from Marion, Kentucky on the western side of the state. My uh, great-grandfather happened to serve in the United States Army Air Force during World War II, and after the war became a colonel with a transport wing as a reservist. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the World War II aircraft and the early Cold War aircraft that he may or may not have served on. Thanks. All right, Jordan. Well, ask and you shall receive. Because (laughs) if you are listening to this episode on release day, which is Monday, August 12th, well, it's very possible that right now at this very moment, I am recording an episode on the B-17. And so we have that in the hopper. We're going to save it with the B-52 and a couple others for Bomber Month. It's like Shark Week, only better. (laughs) And I have a friend at my airline. That's right. I have a friend at my airline who flies P-51s, whose dad was a Tuskegee Airman. No kidding. so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He takes them around to air shows. Oh, dude. And so I'm hoping to get him on the show. And absolutely, anyone we could find who flew or flies any aircraft through the ages, well, we're going to be looking for them because there's a lot of great aircraft out there. And the good news is, Sunshine, that'll keep us in business for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, thanks for the great questions. Keep them coming. And there will be information at the end from our buddy Clint Bell and our bumper announcements on how to submit your questions. But Sunshine, I think for the sake of time, we better jump right into this interview with Sweet Pea. Great idea, man. I'm excited. So the uh, the aircraft here, and can I geek out for just a second, Jello? Absolutely. So yeah, we love our pointy things that go fast. That's sexy and all. I actually absolutely love this aircraft. I'm jealous of the pilots that got to fly it. I only flew the sim, but the whole tilt rotor thing, just uh, you know, because this whole VTOL right vertical takeoff landing thing started back mm-hmm. uh, just at the end of World War II with the 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 German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, right? And then eventually, in, back in 58, the U.S. Air Force actually had their first uh, XV-3, they called it. So this concept goes way back, but you never really saw any... It didn't come to fruition uh, for the tilt rotor stuff, right, until now. So I'm just uh, excited for the interview. Oh, good. Well, Sweet Pea is the man to tell us all about it. Let's let him take it from here. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we're going to talk the V-22 Osprey in all its variants. And here to help us do that is Major Josh Smith of the United States Marine Corps, call sign Sweet Pea. How are you, dude? Hey, I'm great. It's great to be here, Vince. Awesome to be on the show. Excellent. Well, I should say right up front, you are a trooper for putting up with me. We started (laughs) this process, what, about a year ago? Uh, And we came close to having interviews a few times. I canceled on you last time because my wife had some meeting for me to go to. And then this week we messed up a date I did. And so anyway, we're finally here. Here we are. (laughs) Well, thanks very much. All right, bud. Well, before we talk about the Osprey, which is just one of many aircraft you've flown, as I've heard so far, why don't you tell everybody else about all the aircraft you've flown? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What have you done up till now? And what are you doing now? Okay, well, uh, very cool. My background, uh, grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Went to the University of Utah. Okay. uh, Naval ROTC, Marine Corps uh, side there. Got my commission that way, mm-hmm. came in wanting to fly aircraft. That was what I wanted to do in, right. in the military. Didn't know where that was going to lead me, but the Marine Corps seemed really cool. And uh, in high school, you know, I went that that direction. I got that scholarship to mm-hmm. go to, to to go to school. So uh, fast forward, the basic school, find out, hey, we got you a, a seat down at flight school. Get down to Pensacola. And, uh, you know, what do you know? Hurricane Ivan had just hit. So Pensacola was smashed. A a very vivid memory was driving over the bridge to NAS Pensacola down there. And there is this giant sailboat on the road. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You know, and just the the base was destroyed. But anyway, it was it was a couple of years of a lot of fun between uh, Pensacola, Corpus Christi, back to Whiting Field to learn helicopters and uh, my initial. Uh, aircraft that I was selected for was uh, the CH-46. Okay. For those uh, listeners that don't know, it's a big helicopter. looks kind of like a Chinook with two rotors. And was that my first choice? Well, it wasn't really, <laughs> but... You're reading my mind over here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm taking you down that road. <laughs> so I, I get selected for helicopters because it was just, hey, I, I remember vividly finishing primary in Corpus. Mm-hmm. And in comes the uh, the CO who is a Navy uh, CO at uh, VT twenty eight. Okay. And he says, "Hey, if you're a Marine, congratulations! You got helicopters because you all got it." Oh wow! And then he, then he proceeded to tell the Navy guys how they broke out. Um, but that's how it goes sometimes. Sure. With selection. Needs of the Navy, in this case, needs of the Marine Corps. That's right. right. So I end up at Whiting Field, and the CO I was in uh, HT eight, HT eighteen with the Marine commander. And he's telling me, hey, you got good grades. Where do you want to go? You want to go fly Cobras? You want to go do, you know, this, that, and the other? 
I said, well, honestly, sir, just community-wise, I want to go fly something with wheels because wheels compared to skids mm-hmm. in uh, Marine Corps rotor wing aviation are very different communities. Really? So skids are attacks, wheels are assault support. Okay. And I wanted wheels west coast. Okay. And he said, oh, I totally understand because he, he was a frog pilot himself. That's the CH-46? CH-46, okay. that's right. So he, uh, he totally understood that, and he went to bat for me, got me what I wanted, Great. which was... 46 squadron at Miramar, phenomenal, and that started all off. So came out to Camp Pendleton for training on the CH-46 at at, uh, HMMT-164, the Knight Riders. That's the training squadron. Then into HMM-165 was my first squadron. I spent six years in that squadron as a junior officer. Phenomenal. Uh, Two deployments on the MU, Marine Expeditionary Unit, as a 46 driver. And then got the opportunity to transition with my squadron as it converted from 46 to V-22. Oh. And we did that in 2011. Okay. And so I've been a V-22 pilot since then. And I uh, spent uh, a couple of years in uh, VMM-166, which is the squadron next door. Did another MU deployment with them. Uh, from there, decided I, I had this uh, desire for a long time to go and fly with HMX-1. All right, and tell is, us who HMX-1 is. Okay, and they <laughs> that is the Presidential Helicopter Squadron. Wow. So for all listeners, whenever you see the president getting on that helicopter on the White House lawn, getting off at Andrews Air Force Base, or getting off that... Wherever he's going. Wherever he is in the mm-hmm. world, those aircraft are operated by HMX-1, which is the first helicopter squadron in the Marine Corps, hmm. founded back in the 1940s. And they have a really cool history that we can we can get into. But I had a desire because I had I had flown with some pilots who had done that previously, mm-hmm. and they made it sound so cool <laughs> back in the Bush days of uh, GW okay. and going to the ranch in Texas. So I had that itch, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected. It's a board selection to get out there, and uh, I was in the third ever class of guys that flew Ospreys to go there. Okay, so we finally made a full ready room. Of Osprey guys, so I was there 2015 to 18, and then just last year came back out to Miramar for another uh, stint <laughs> here. And I'm with uh, VMM 764, which is a reserve squadron. Okay, I uh, converted over to active reserve, so I'm full time support oh, okay. currently. So it's like being active duty, but you belong to a different pot of money essentially. It, exactly, yeah, I, right. I work okay. every day, and I'm the maintenance officer currently at that squadron. Okay, excellent, yeah. and. Just starting at the beginning, so Utah, I think of Salt Lake City as an Air Force town. San Diego's a Navy town. Big time. But so that didn't call you at all, huh? You decided to go Marine Corps? Well, <laughs> it, it did. I think uh, I had all options open, um, hmm. was trying to uh, get into the academies, and I actually did get into the Naval Academy. Really? An appointment and everything. Oh, wow. Um, from both my senator and congressman. Good for you. <laughs> when okay. I was a young man, I, I was going after this military thing. It didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had met some Marines, uh, you know, recruiters and whatnot, and uh, I had found out that I, I couldn't go to the Naval Academy right away because I had had some oral surgery that required uh, some braces when I was a senior, you mm-hmm. know, very late in the game to get that. And the Naval Academy said, well, you can't come with that. Really? Okay. You got to wait a year. And I, well, I don't want to burn a year. Sure. 
So I went after, uh, I was concurrently going after the NRTC scholarship. So I go, I get the scholarship and, um, you know, the Marines had just intrigued me. So yeah. I, I started talking to them because the approach was different. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's funny because I look back at it now and I look at young Marines who are given that pitch that they, they would give back then and like, what's important to you? What are these qualities mm-hmm. you know, they put out there? And I was like, this is really cool because I just talked to these Navy guys. They want me to be on a submarine. They're like, you're smart. Go be on a submarine. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be in a submarine. Yeah. I want to go yeah. aviation. But they kept pushing the submarine thing, so I said goodbye. <laughs> and uh, the Marines, of course, like, well, what do you want to do? We're going to facilitate that. Excellent. So anyway, I end up uh, going the Marine Corps way, and it's it's been a phenomenal Good. ride. But it's not typical. No, yeah. well, you know, the Marines attract a certain type of person. I have the utmost respect for Marines. I was a signature away if they'd had me, and it sounded like they would, <laughs> but I just, I didn't feel like I was a Marine in, in training. So I said, thanks, but no thanks, and I ended up finding my own path, and I don't want to make it about me. But at any rate, all right, so you, you did that. Dude, I have to ask you about the Night Riders. Did you have pictures of David Hasselhoff around uh, the squadron? David Hasselhoff. <laughs> so, yeah, they have... Uh, you can certainly look it up online uh-huh. for uh, VMM uh, 164, but they have some cool tail art on yeah? the aircraft. Okay. I mean, the you know, like the Grim Reaper yeah. type. I think I have seen stuff. those. It, okay. it, it's it's pretty neat what they got right. up there. And then yeah. finally, for your HMX one days, I have to ask: Did you ever get to assume the call sign Marine One? So, uh, as an Osprey pilot, you don't really get to do that because the okay. president doesn't fly the Osprey. But I was Marine. Two, okay. The vice president, Vice President Pence, got to fly him in Texas just after Hurricane Harvey. All right. When he and a delegation came down to right. uh, assess the damage, that was that was a pretty neat experience. I have a selfie with the VP. Excellent. In the cockpit. All right. He just <laughs> drove down our street in Coronado the other day. He That's was coming right. on the He's... base for something. They made us move all our cars off the one side of the street. I was somewhere else, but uh, all right, cool. All right, buddy. Well, how many hours do you have in the V twenty two now? I have about sixteen hundred hours wow. in the V twenty two. I had All about right. a thousand in the in the CH forty six. Okay. And then, you know, flight school. Right. Training as Good. well. My neighbor, by the way, is a retired forty six pilot. So oh. I've always told him, Hey, we need to get you on the show and he says, Just say when. So uh, <laughs> Good man. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. All right, perfect. Well, let's start at the top. I don't know if you listen to the show, but I, I sent you the bullet so you know what's coming first. Yeah. Tell us why the V twenty two exists. What was it designed to do? Well, it's it's an interesting concept, and it starts, I won't give the full length, but just the Reader's Digest, uh, back in the 1950s and 60s, the Navy, the Air Force, everyone was interested in this thing of how can we make an air, airplane that doesn't need a runway that can land, take off vertically, and mm-hmm. can go fast. Right. So we want the best skills of a, or qualities of an airplane right. and the best capabilities of a helicopter. And you can watch documentaries, the old black and white <laughs> footage of these crazy contraptions crashing and all this kind of stuff. And it's it's just insane some of the ideas they came up with, these vertical jets that would land and all that. Mm-hmm. And out of that era, the only thing that really survived was you get into the late uh, 70s is the Harrier jet, right? right? The jump jet. And it's obviously been a, a really good design that's worked uh, well, but it's a very unique aircraft that has some challenges. The V-22 actually came in to being, you know, coming out of that era in the late 1970s, we had uh, the hostage crisis in Iran. Right. And you remember how there was an attempt at a rescue that was a big disaster in uh, uh, trying to get 
get all those folks out that right. have been in the embassy. And coming off of that, some people got together like, we should try this again. We've moved forward in technology. They're into the early 1980s, and they started some tilt-rotor uh, tech- technology with the, uh, the – there was a VX-15 or something. There's a prototype that's out at the Dulles uh, – the museum okay. out at Dulles Airport in uh, D.C. that's part of the hmm. Air, Air and Space Museum. And you can see kind of some of the concepts they were coming up with. Well, they had all kinds of trouble with that, too. Fast forward, we get into the late 80s, early 90s, and they finally figured out computer technology has come up okay. that we can make this thing work because we need stabilization systems and all kinds of different software. Sure. And it just wasn't available earlier on because we're talking about doing something that is truly revolutionary. So it took about to the mid-90s before software and computers got to the point where we could make this thing work. And so we just celebrated the 30th uh, anniversary of the first Osprey. Right. Wow. Am, am, amazing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, but then we didn't have the first deployment until 2007. Wow. So it's been uh, quite a stretch, right? Mm-hmm. It was 12 years ago that the first deployment happened. Anyway, that aircraft kind of went through all these different uh, revisions. The program was canceled. Right. And then it was reinstated. And we, we really figured out what was needed for training of pilots, software to make this whole thing work and make it uh, what it is today. And it, the future looks bright, too. Good, for sure. Uh, the development process, as I recall, looked a little bit painful. There were some mishaps. For sure. Yeah, for and sure. And it was, but it was cutting-edge technology. I mean, like you said, nobody had tried to do this. So I still think of it as a new airplane. I had no idea that it's been out for 30 years, for heaven's sakes. And so yeah. I struggle on this show, by the way, right? We have an aircraft which could be anything, and then you have an airplane, which is like a fixed wing and a helicopter, I believe, are the two subsets, right? What do we call this thing? Is it an airplane? Is it a helicopter? Is it an aircraft? Um, what is it? Well, that, you know, that's a, that is a great uh, question, Jello, because um, so the FAA calls us powered lift, All right. which is a category in and of itself. Hmm. So, you know, there's airplane category with thousands of air, different kinds of airplanes, multi-engine, right. whatever. There's Rotorcraft, which has gyroplanes, helicopters, that's a category. And then there's this third other category over here. And I know there's more categories than that, but there is this category that stands alone called powered lift that only has three aircraft in it. All right. And it has the Harrier, hmm. the Osprey, okay. and the F-35B, but only the B, not the A or the C, <laughs> just the vertical takeoff. All right. And uh, so that's what the FA calls. We call it tilt rotor. And so tilt rotor kind of encompasses this idea that we can take off vertically, we can do some helicopter type stuff, Mm -hmm. but we can also move our rotor system forward. And we call our our rotors prop rotors because they're also, they're a prop and a rotor. Mm. And we can use our wing because we have a fixed wing between those two that allows us to operate as an airplane (laughs) for most of the time. And uh, typical flight, 90 Plus percent of the time you're an airplane. Right. Okay. But you cannot land like a traditional airplane because you'll bang your blades off the Yeah, uh, it's runway. it's a little bit of a hybrid. So um, essentially you can you can land anywhere from zero knots up to 
uh, our landing gear limit of 88 knots. Okay. So you can land pretty fast. You can do a roll-on landing, which obviously if you're heavy, mm-hmm. using that wing is is better, and you can use the length of a runway. Same thing for takeoff, but you're always going to be tilted, uh, not all the way down at zero uh, nacelle, which would be nacelles all the way down looking like an airplane. Mm-hmm. And you certainly don't have to be at 90 like a helicopter, but you're going to be in between those two. So for takeoff, we might okay. be at 60. And usually this comes up later, but since it's on our minds now as far as flying the airplane, sorry, flying the tilt rotor goes, yeah. do you manually control where it's pointing or is that a result based on something else that you're inputting? Well, uh, that's actually a great, great question, Joe, because most of the time it's manual. So I yeah. have full authority to put it where I want to mm-hmm. put it. However, because it is a fly-by-wire aircraft and it does have flight control systems and mission computers that sure. are monitoring what you're doing, the airplane will not let you break it. <laughs> so I call that fly-by-vote yeah, instead yeah. of fly-by-wire. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. You're familiar with that mm-hmm. in that we have input, but if we're doing something that it doesn't want us to do, it will override in some cases. So uh, where that comes into play is is speed. So I can't suddenly become a helicopter if I'm doing over 200 knots. It just won't let me do that. Okay. But uh, as I slow down, I can bring the rotor system gotcha. up so that aerodynamic forces don't break the sure. airplane. And I think anyone who drives a car is familiar with this. I mean, if you took a 1960 Corvette, it's a car. You're driving it, and what you do is what you get. Now you take right. a 2019 Corvette, and you've got anti-lock and over and understeer protection, and God knows what else. I can't even keep up with it all. But you can do what you want, and... You can get yourself in some trouble, but for the most part, cars these days will save you from buffoonery driving. So it sounds like the same thing. All right, so let's get back to what it was designed to do. So essentially, it fills a need, if you will, between, let's say, the CH-46 and the C-130 of hauling things and people and whatever the Marine Corps needs. And it can do it vertically, and it can also go fast once it needs to. And so logistics, essentially, cargo. That, that's right, and uh, Marines. So and Marines. Marine Corps, we call that assault support, Okay, and that's moving people and stuff, so cargo, around the battle space. And so everything from hard-hit-type raids where we're taking uh, a battalion company of, of Marines and putting them into a zone where they're going to go off immediately and start shooting things, kicking doors in. That's what we do. Okay, That is the focus of what we do is supporting the infantry units out there. And that's in our DNA Uh as Marines to do that. And as assault support, it's all about supporting them. And so with that mission comes a couple of other missions. So we put the Marines into an LZ and they're going to go do some fighting. Well, we got to get them out of there too. So things like emergency extract, Kazavac, getting our casualties home. Mm -hmm. And so we will dedicate assets to do that. In addition, resupply. So we got to move cargo around. We got to get them water. We got to get them chow. We got to, we got to move parts around for trucks and different things. And we even have things like, uh, there, uh, there are vehicles that will move. I've, I've flown, uh, ATVs. Uh, we have this expeditionary fighting vehicle that uh, we can put in the back, which is a mobile art, artillery system with a 120 millimeter mortar Dang, that's big. Yeah. And so I've flown those. Uh, you, you, you can uh, do pair ops with the, uh, the aircraft so we could put Marines in that way. Certainly done a bunch of that. We can drop (laughs) 
a battlefield illumination out of it. So it really turns it has become this multi-role aircraft, which a lot of helicopters sure. are that way. Um, and the C-130 is that way too. Where we really excel is that long-range distance of doing this stuff and certainly ship to shore or ship to ship. Mm. And from my deployments on on various uh, ships over the three MUs that I've done, what we have found is that the appetite for that becomes insatiable, <laughs> both from the Marine yeah. side and the Navy side. Because sure. we're working with, with uh, an ARG and, uh, you know, an amphibious readiness group, and they may want uh, a part. Mm-hmm. And on the, on, the, on the Gator Navy, you don't have... Uh, a cod, you know, you don't have the C2 that you can fly over to the carrier and get something and come back. You don't right, have that. Right. But you have Ospreys now. Right. So, hey, the carrier's 300 miles away, and we need this part. So they're not going to send the helicopter. It'd take them a couple hours to get there right. and send us. We go over and get it and come back. And that, uh, we certainly excel at that. Mm. And then to, taking Marines from the ship to the shore, you've just expanded that range and that battle space tremendously. Right, and speed, if you need to get there quickly. Okay, so based on all that, and of course the listener can't see the light on your face, but uh, (laughs) it looks like the assault mission is the answer to my next question. But of all those different things, is there something that's really just bread and butter for this thing as far as either efficiency or efficacy or lethality or anything else? I mean, what is it really good at? Or is it good at all of them? Well, uh, certainly it has things that it's good at and Mm -hmm. uh, that and other things that's not not as good at. Um, I I think uh, when you start talking about things like sling load, which we can do, we and can, that's carrying something under the tilt that, rotor. That's that's correct. So we're we've got uh, two cargo hooks, and we can pick up a, a heavy load, ten thousand mm-hmm. pound load on those, and then take them and drop them somewhere. So something you couldn't load interior inside the interior of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. However, um, although we can do that, CH fifty three is just better equipped to do that. And uh, again, the 46 was was well equipped to do that. But where we really excel is getting those Marines into zone. And that's what we train for. <laughs> yeah. We we train uh I was out flying last night. We were we were discussing that. And I was training a new uh pilot, a young guy who just got into his first squadron. And what was the night all about? It was hitting this uh waypoint that we had put out in the desert and just hitting it on the same heading and the same distance from that point every single time in formation. So mm. this was, and that's what we train a lot to. Okay. We, we, we want to be able to put the Marines on time, on target, wherever they need to go so they can go do their job. Okay. So if this was a young baseball player, hey, dude, this is going to be a fastball. Fastball, fastball, fastball. In other words, you just wanted him to get that one skill because someday he may be required to land at a LZ at a certain time with a certain heading, and that's important so that you guys are just developing those skills. That's part right. test training. That, that's, cool. that's absolutely right. Okay. And, it, and it won't just be in an LZ mm-hmm. at night, you know, low light with no moon. It, it will also be coming home to the ship right. on that pitching deck with no moon in the Persian <laughs> Gulf, yeah. and uh, you just can't see anything. But you want that muscle memory to be so sure. good that those Marines, that they're probably sleeping in the back when you're bringing them out of the field at <laughs> right. this point because yeah. they're so tired, uh, that they wake up when the wheels touch down on the deck and you just had a successful mission. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk through the variants and 
a lot of aircraft that I have the privilege of interviewing folks on. I know some of these. I'll be honest. The alphabet soup with the V-22 confuses me. So <laughs> I know there's a C, there's an M, and these are all prefixes. I don't know about A's or B's on the end. And now there's about to be, I think, a CMV. So let's, uh, however you want to go through it, but right. I'm going to take notes because I really don't know. Okay. Well, uh, this, is, this is a great uh, topic. So the introduction to this is the Marine Corps obviously has the lion's share of the V-22s that exist out there. We uh, purchased uh, something like 300 airframes, close to that, and we're still taking delivery of them. Oh, so wow, there's, cool. the production line's still open. Our variant is called the MV-22 Bravo. All V-22s are Bravos. Okay, so with the A's, the prototype, yeah, the early A, models. Yeah, it was gotcha. a prototype from, from uh, the, the 1990s. Okay. So everything coming off the production line is a B uh, a model and ours are MV and it's just that's the Marine and M is just multi mission yeah yeah which, and based that, on what you just said is what you guys are doing that's that's <laughs> right and so uh, we have that and uh, we have certain uh, things in ours that uh, are just specific that the the Marine Corps bought pretty much a standard model okay. off the lot now the Air Force does fly the the V twenty two as well theirs is called the CV twenty two and it's a B model as well but they have a totally different mission. So they belong to AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command. Okay. And they support special operations. So they're they're uh moving SEALs, they're they're moving all those spec ops mm-hmm. units from the Army, uh Navy, uh Air Force, and even the Marine Corps sometimes. So they have a very specific mission and the Air Force only bought uh less than 50 airframes. So hmm. they have a small fleet and they do a very specific thing. They, hmm. If you take a look at them, they have a, a little bit cooler paint job, I think, than ours. They have kind of <laughs> that darker paint on the top right. and a little bit lighter on the bottom. A few things that they have that we don't have is they have a train-following radar oh. built into theirs okay. so that they can really get down on the deck and couple up to that and just Ooh. the aircraft will go. Sure. Uh, they have a little bit more gas in their uh, their fuel tanks. They have a, an extra fuel tank in there, which supports their long-range missions that they mm-hmm. do for AFSOC. Um, certainly, all models have uh, a refueling probe, so we can go up and take gas using okay. using the, the V-22 as the mail. That's the Navy system, right. and you're, you're marrying that up with a, a hose and a basket from yep. a C-130. Probe and drogue, we call it. That's yep. right, the mm-hmm. drogue. So they all have that. And then uh, the Navy has just purchased them, and their model they're going to call the CMV-22. I'm not sure why they went with the CMV. <laughs> they added more letters. That's right. But uh, the V-22 and the Navy, soon to come, they're going to take delivery next year of their aircraft, begin taking delivery. And their aircraft are going to be called a VOD, so vertical onboard uh, delivery. Instead of a COD, carrier onboard delivery. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's a neat thing. So it's going to replace the C-2 in a lot of ways. And I know there's skeptics out there, but it will uh, certainly bring some capabilities that the COD doesn't have. And they'll lose some capability that the COD did have in in terms of range and because it's not a true airplane. But I think the Navy's getting a big win because Mm -hmm. the V-22 will have the ability to go to the carrier. It also have the ability to go to other amphibs Mm -hmm. and other air-capable ships. So you'll be able to go to the LHD or the LPD 
as well as the carrier right. and base out of uh, runways and say Bahrain and theater and move hmm. do do that logistics mission and uh, we can do it quite well okay so. now could you jump in a CV22 and go fly it or is it a different qualification uh no absolutely we I absolutely could okay. so we do have an exchange program with the Air Force where we we only have one marine down there but every uh, two years, a, a Marine gets sure. to go down and uh, be an exchange pilot with the Air Force. That's a pretty cool thing that they get to do. Good. The airframes themselves between the three, whether you're talking CV with the Air Force, MV with the Marines, or CMV with the Navy, are 99.5% okay. compatible. <laughs> gotcha. with very, you know, I mentioned the train following radar, the difference in the fuel tanks, but right. as far as software goes, handling emergencies, handling okay. everything yeah. would be uh, would, okay. would be pretty much the same. And does the Air Force train their own, or do they come train at the Marine Squadron? Oh, that's that's what's really cool is that it's all joint right now. So oh, okay. uh, the Marine Corps owns the the, the RAG, if you will, or mm-hmm. FRS Fleet yep. Replacement Squadron. That's at uh, New River. MCAS New River in uh, North Carolina, and everybody goes there. Okay. So you get your first touches of the airplane at uh, MCAS New River in uh, North Carolina, and we had uh, Air Force instructors there, Air Force students there, Marine instructors, Marine students, and now they have Navy instructors and students. And, oh, I I wanted to mention that Japan bought B-22s as well. So the Japanese were going through 204, All right. uh, VMMT 204 at New River as well. So it's this little melting pot there. And then, of course, the Air Force guys come out to uh, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and they finish their training in, uh, in New Mexico. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, they have their specialized stuff. Interesting. Who else is buying it or has bought it or operates the Osprey? Well, uh, so far, no one else has uh, made a purchase, although I think there were some agreements on one of my deployments. We were tasked <laughs> to go tasked show it off, <laughs> to take it to the Dubai Air Show okay. as well as the Bahrain Air Show yeah. and show the uh, the aircraft off. And I know there were some uh, some some deals made from some Middle Eastern states to purchase uh-huh. the aircraft. And I think the, they didn't necessarily materialize, but I know the Israelis were very interested for a while and okay. then they, they realized that uh, in a country the size of Israel, long range isn't really required, but I, they, there was enough interest to, to to do what they wanted to do with it, mm. and they may may purchase it in the future. But Japan was very interested, and they did uh, end up buying. Okay, excellent. All right, so the next question that we normally ask is probably a dumb one because it's why does it look the way it does? And I think for this particular aircraft, it's a distinct look. But, I mean, really it comes down to – you have these, uh, you're going to need to tighten me up on the terminology, but you do have a fixed wing, like you said, and you have a tail, like an airplane, but then you have these big, what do you call those things, the pods? or The cells. Cells, okay, and yeah. those rotate anywhere from, you said, basically straight up and down, and that's what, 90, to straight horizontal, and that's zero. But then all of this can fold up, too. That's in, right. Into this tight little bundle, and that's presumably so it can save room on the ship? Or can it also be transported, like maybe in a C-5 or something? Probably too big for that. It's a, it's a little bit too tall with the tail. You'd have to take okay. the tail off for a C-5. But yes, uh, so the nacelle it houses both the engine and the gearboxes that allow for that, that movement up and down mm-hmm. and the reduction gearbox for okay. the, the prop rotor. Um, what's unique to the air, aircraft and uh, 
goes into some of that design is the fact that we have an interconnecting drive shaft that I should mention huh. that if you were to have an engine failure, because I get asked this question all the time, well, if you have an engine failure, what happens? Because only one of those. <laughs> they just fails. assume you like do somersaults and. Yeah. Okay. You would, you would you know, if you were in helicopter mode, you'd immediately crash uh, if you didn't have an interconnecting drive shaft, right. which is one of the issues they had in the, in the early days, in the 50s and 60s, trying to come up with this technology. So if I lose an engine, the other engine is connected through this interconnecting drive shaft through the gearboxes that it will drive the prop on the other side. So in airplane mode, it's almost a non-issue. You could shut an engine down and still do 200 knots of airspeed. Um, It'll just limit you on power a little bit. Now, Mm -hmm. helicopter mode, because you really need that RPM to to fly, it will affect you more, that power reduction, because you're only going to get about 63% torque out of the engine so you would have a noticeable power reduction and you would you would need a runway if you were heavy at all sure or at altitude but let's uh get back to what you asked me and that is why does it look the way it does yeah so that nacelle moves around and it can move from zero which would be airplane mm-hmm. all the way back to 96 degrees oh. so it can actually move aft wow and that's a really cool feature because it allows you to put that that rotor system aft like that for stopping power uh, as you're coming to slow down. And it also okay. allows you to fly backwards. And do you guys do that? Yeah, and you can do that. Wow, yes. okay. So not only can you uh, backwards taxi, so you, you can back out of a spot sure. if you had to. You c- From a hover, you could push the nacelles back and actually fly backwards. So that's possible. And a uh, helicopter talk here, you have a swashplate <laughs> that moves the rotor system in any direction, so fully articulates that rotor system So you, for hovering. So you could fly sideways, backwards, forward, okay. X, Y, Z, and you can use the pedals to turn and uh, yaw huh. uh, the aircraft around. So that's all very unique, and it's designed to allow us to do that. And one of the coolest things that we can do at an air show you can go out and fly it. You can hover and fly, and people think that's really cool. But for the kids, they love to see the Transformer, right? <laughs> of course. And Hollywood has picked up on this, and the V-22 has been in Transformers movies yes. as well. all right. And uh, because it's a real-life Transformer. And essentially, we can go from any mode to any other mode within 90 seconds, and it's all electrically driven. I can select whatever configuration I want to on my multifunction display in the cockpit mm-hmm. and then just hold down a blade fold wingstow button and it will put me in that configuration. And so that means I can f- completely stow the wing, fold the blades up to where the wing is in line with the fuselage and within the uh, width of the landing gear. Just to be clear, we're on the ground during this. We are on the ground, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You would not want to do this in the air. And thank you, John. I'm guessing for... there's uh, perco- or, uh, inhibitors from doing that, yeah, but anyway. It, Sorry. Yeah, you but, would yeah. not be able to do this in flight. All right. But that, uh, that was designed in there to stow them up in the smallest package possible mm. for shipboard operations. Wow, very cool. Yeah. Okay. And it also uh, assists for many uh, maintenance functions to uh, get into the the mid-wing area has the APU, so the auxiliary okay. power unit, yep. and some gearboxes and generators, and right. it allows you to get in there a little easier. But that uh, is for shipboard ops, and it's probably one of the coolest things to see it 
fully stow and then unstow and come back right. to like, oh, come back to life. It can fly now. Yeah. So uh, what you're trying to say is your best act at an air show is on the ground? Yeah. Uh, I, you, I, I am saying yeah, that. Yeah, okay. It, it has is there a V-22 demo anywhere? I know the Harrier will do its demo and it'll go left and right and forward and back and up and down. There, there absolutely is. So oh, uh, I've never seen it. I, I could put in a plug for the Miramar Air Show at the end of September. Come out and see it. You'll, you'll see the aircraft there. The Fighter Pilot Podcast was there last year. I'm hoping to be there this year in 2019. Absolutely. And many of the air shows that we go to, we do what's called the Level 3 demo, where you would see hover, hover demonstration and also high-speed flight turns okay. and conversion and what we call conversion, which is going from airplane to helicopter and then transition, which is helicopter to airplane. Oh, conversion and transition. Interesting. And as part of the MAGTAF demo, I think it also demonstrates the ability to carry the sling loads. At least I think it did last year. Yeah. So they've done a variety of things uh, there. In 2014, I actually led the Osprey division at the Miramar Air Show. Oh, and cool. we, we had uh, loads of Marines and came in and put them uh, landed them on the runway and they ran off and did things and pyrotechnics went off right. and it was really uh, quite cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was a neat demonstration of what you can do. We came in uh, after the Harriers went through and blew things up and then we came in at about uh, 240 knots in formation. Uh, Echelon did a brake maneuver, came in and landed on the runway. And then after dropping the Marines off, I wanted to show a demonstration of a couple different ways to take off. So we had uh, the lead aircraft mine did a a 60-degree stow, so that is a short takeoff. Okay. Nacelle's a 60-degree, do a short run on the runway, take off. The next guy did a 75, which is a very short roll Mm -hmm. of maybe 50 to 100 feet, and then you're airborne. And then the last guy did just a vertical takeoff like a helicopter. (laughs) So you would definitely get to see a different... Very cool. And do the rotors... Turn the same direction, or are they counter-rotating? They are counter-rotating, okay. and that gives you anti-torque. Right. That's important to any helicopter. Sure. It's why helicopters have a tail rotor. Right. Or if they have two rotors, they'll always turn counterclockwise or uh, counter to each other, so one clockwise, one counterclockwise, okay. to prevent that uh, spinning right. uh, motion. Ideally. A lot of yeah. prop airplanes don't have that. So let me ask you then, when you deploy, is it two different engines, or is it just the gearbox? The engines are the same. Okay. So our engines are made by Rolls-Royce. Hmm. It's the same family of engines that the C-130 uses and okay. the P-3 uh, would use. So uh, it's an Allison uh, built 1107 Charlie. If you're uh, nerding out on engine <laughs> stuff, uh, ours provide quite a bit of horsepower, though, a little more than what the C-130's engines are rated to. 6150 shaft horsepower. So we have 12,300 shaft horsepower between the two getting combined in the gearbox. And the gearbox gives you that props turning it in uh, different directions. Okay. I see them fly up and down the bay sometimes in San Diego. I just hadn't looked closely enough, I guess, (laughs) to see if they're uh, counter-rotating or not. All right. How about armament? So you go into hot areas, like you said, but what are you guys carrying? Yeah, so really it's just defensive stuff. Okay. Uh, the current configuration with our Ospreys in the Marine Corps, and I'll, I'll speak to them specifically, is that we have a ramp-mounted weapon system. So a ramp gun off the tail, it's operated by our crew chief or an aerial observer if he's qualified as a gunner. And you can put different uh, systems on there, the GAU-16, GAU-21, or the the 240. And so that's a 50 caliber machine gun or a 7.62 millimeter 
machine gun that would be off of there. Okay. And because it's it's rear mounted, it's really going to help you out coming out of that zone by <laughs> going in the zone, right? right? And again, we have to kind of go back to um, all Marine helicopters, even uh, 53s, uh, 46s that are assault support helicopters don't really have forward firing ordnance. And that's a big, there's a big distinction between that. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about in my history, whether you want skids or, skids or wheels. Or, right. or wheels. Mm-hmm. So our skids are Cobras and our Hueys. They fire forward firing ordnance. Sure. They do a great job of it. We love them. Um, the way we would go into an objective area, into a zone, and put Marines in there to do uh, their, their their work is we would have those skids in the overhead prosecuting targets ahead of us. Right. Or if we were going somewhere long range where we didn't have the uh, ability to use uh, skids because of our speed and range, mm-hmm. we would use a jet platform. Okay. And very effectively, we used Harriers to do this uh, on one of my deployments where we would line the deck with Ospreys, we would shoot all of our Ospreys on a running takeoff off the deck, mm-hmm. and you could get a whole bunch off really quickly, five, six aircraft, and then right behind you, so we're in route, right, right behind you, they fire the, the uh, Harriers off, and then they beat us to the area, sure. prosecute targets for us, get it cleaned up, we come in and do our thing. And that's kind of how it works. So we're going to land in this zone, we're going to drop the uh, Marines off, and we might get shot at, and if we do, we can uh, we can retaliate with our tail guns. <laughs> but the reality is, we're going to have that other platform that's better equipped for that to prosecute targets for okay. us. And we're going to we're going to boogie out of there and use our speed and our rate of climb to just sure. get out of the uh, envelope sure. with small arms. Okay. How about defensive systems, expendables, or absolutely? Yeah, okay. So I will go back a little bit in history and. Uh, 99, 2000, uh, thereabouts, they were actually talking about putting a nose gun on the Osprey. And Hmm. it was in development. The program was canceled because of cost overruns and just some different things the Marine Corps wanted. But we were going to have a a turreted nose gun on this thing. Sort of like the Cobra? Kind of like the Cobra, yeah. Um, But they have a 20 millimeter, and this was going to be a 7.62, which really can't reach out and touch people. Hmm. So that program was canceled. I think it was probably for the best. Uh, we do have a defensive weapon system, which is a belly gun we can deploy out through the hole that is usually used for the cargo hook, and it gives us a 360 sweep with uh, five barrels, and it's a 7.62. <laughs> it's operated with a modified PlayStation controller. Oh no, no kidding, it looks like a PlayStation, and a screen by a, a Marine in the back. And it's a really cool weapon, but again, it's a 7.62 millimeter, right. so it just doesn't have that that distance to get out there and touch someone but it can shoot a lot of rounds really fast. Um, so Sweet, Sweet P, I'm, I'm envisioning uh, Star Wars when the uh, stormtroopers are closing on the Millennium Falcon. This little gun pops down and starts blasting them all. So something like that, huh? You, you bet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Look it up. It, it was made by British Aerospace right. uh, Engineering BAE, and it's a really cool weapon, but uh, it's something that you have to deploy out after you take off and retract or you'll land on it, <laughs> and uh, its range is a little bit limited. Right. So... Uh, expendables, we do have flares and chaff, mm-hmm. and uh, that you know that's good for, okay. for any, those threat environments. Any type of electronic countermeasures? Uh, no, just okay. just information given to the pilot gotcha. so you can react. All right. And if you guys, depending on where you're going, probably will carry a sidearm with you or something. Absolutely, okay. we do have things, and the, the Air Force has some systems on their aircraft, uh, like Durkham, that uh, are a little bit more electronic countermeasure, like you said, mm. and the Marine Corps 
is purchasing those and they're retrofitting okay. some, some airframes for that. Am I allowed to ask you what Durkham stands for? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can always edit this part. Yeah, that's okay. We, uh, I mean, they, they, uh, listeners can, can look it up, but it's, it's a countermeasure system okay. that can defeat uh, infrared missiles. Okay, yeah. excellent. Um, let's see, moving on. How about performance? Now, you already said that it can aerial refuel. So what can it do as far as speed, altitude? I'm guessing it'll pull a lot of Gs in this thing normally. But uh, Or how far can you go? Well, everybody uh, likes to ask this question at mm-hmm. air shows. So our, our V&E, so our, our max speed is 280 knots. Okay. And that's uh, certainly they took it much faster in flight tests sure. over 340. Um, but we're limited by that. Our Mach number is kind of kind of low at a 0.48 Mach yeah. is what we're allowed to do. Up to 25,000 feet mm-hmm. is what we can do um, per our our uh, limitations, and it's non-pressurized. I was just about to ask so, that. So everyone's going to have to wear supplemental oxygen. Yeah, you got to have oxygen. Now, uh, early days, we're talking early 2000s, they were they were trying to give us a pressurized system. For whatever reason, they, they uh, decided not to continue with that program. The Marine Corps didn't. I wish we had it. It, it may be something that comes in the next generation of tilt rotor, uh, but uh, we have to put on oxygen when we're going up high above okay. 10,000 feet. Uh, but yeah, 25,000 feet, 280 knots. Uh, so for those that don't speak in knots and speak miles per hour, it's about 322 miles an hour. Uh, obviously, helicopter type stuff, you have some some limitations. Sure. Uh, above about 10,000 feet, it's going to be tough to land in, a, in an LZ on top of a mountain, but you can go a little higher. You, you could get up to 14,000, but you'd be pretty limited on what you could carry out of there. Well, and that's true of any helicopter. Sure. And hopefully we're not doing a lot of armed combat up there. <laughs> okay. I uh, should have asked you this before. Crew. So two pilots or a pilot and an NFO? I'm guessing two pilots. Two pilots. Okay. And then what do you got in the back? Typically a crew of four with two pilots, a crew chief and an aerial observer okay. slash gunner in the back. Uh, but some missions only require... Just a crew chief, so a crew of three at a minimum. But uh, typically for combat, you're going to be talking about a crew of four. Now, the Air Force does have a flight engineer that sits in the, the middle seat, the jump seat, in the mm. cockpit, and they have more radios and things okay. in there because they are a special operations command right. platform. But uh, typically we're talking a crew of four. Okay. Now, I'm guessing, again, fairly low G. That's not something you're normally doing in this thing? Oh, yes. So... Again, fly by wire, so I get a vote. I get to say, hey, I want to do this, and the computer says, no, you don't, because you'll break me. Um, So uh, a little over four Gs is what you could pull in in the aircraft, which is is plenty, right? And uh, we have a really good uh, reaction in the vertical plane. If you were to look at the elevator on the tail, it's Mm -hmm. a very big surface. So if you have some speed on, like if we we're flying low altitude tactics and you were shot at, the first thing you want to do is get out of there, right? So sure. we can really pull some Gs to uh, get out of there. It's just sustaining it that you're not really going to be able to do. Gotcha. So if you were to compare it, uh, you know, an, an, an F-18 or something who has a, a lot of knots on 500 knots or something, mm-hmm. he's got a lot of give with that speed to, to be able to sustain some Gs for some time right. where – 240 knots, you're going to bleed it down pretty quickly in a 4G turn to right. where yeah. 
uh, it won't be sustainable anymore. <laughs> so it's really just going to get you out of a pickle, and then uh, you're you're going to be able to. Okay. What's the fastest and highest you've seen in this thing? So I have gone to 25,000 okay. feet, and I have absolutely gone to 280 <laughs> knots. All right. In case anyone's listening, right? Yeah. Awesome. All righty. Now, what would you say are some strengths and weaknesses of the uh, V-22? And maybe we should take this question out because it's always, I mean, again, it, it can't go 500 knots. Well, of course it can't go 500 knots. That's not necessarily a weakness. But, I mean, regarding way it was built and what you have right now, if you could wave your magic checkbook wand, if you will, and say, I wish they would fund this or fix that, is there anything, uh, and that's the weaknesses, I mean, is there anything you really love about it? Is there anything you wish you could fix if you had the money that they oh, just haven't gotten around to? Absolutely. Uh, so it's a great question, Jello, and it, it gets a little bit political into, you know, What's the Marine Corps going to fund? Because I right. fly the Marine Corps variant, and the Air Force has their variant. And you mm-hmm. always look at, you look at what they have. You're like, oh, that's really cool. You know, they've got the Corvette. We've got we got the basic model, and they got the upgrade model, right, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, it does really excel at that at that long uh, range uh, assault support for what we want it to do. So I've done a translant. I've flown across the Atlantic with this thing wow. when I was at HMX. And it, it, it did phenomenally. Um, if the aircraft is taken care of well, then all your systems, like your ice protection, will work really well. And you can mm-hmm. fly in those environments that are just kind of hostile weather environments with ice or with heat or whatnot. Um, so it really does that well. If there was one thing that I wanted more of, it's always fuel, right? <laughs> of course. And so our air, the Marine Corps variant, our standard fuel load that we could fill up to with just the normal fuel tanks. And we're not talking about putting additional tanks into the cabin, which we can do. Wow. Okay. Um, is 11,700 pounds of fuel. Wow. Which is a lot of fuel. Right? Well, but it's not as much as I would expect it. I mean, it's only slightly more than a F-18. Right. And that's going to get you, Regular you horror. know, about if, if you had to consider IFR, Tight. So, you know, instrument flight rules with weather at the at your destination, mm-hmm. it's going to get you about 800 miles. Okay. All right. Without refueling or anything like that. So I would always like more fuel. Sure. So the Air Force, they have an extra fuel tank in there so they can get 13.6 okay. on, on their fuel. And the Navy said, hey, we want more fuel. So their variant's going to have much more fuel, hmm. something like six or 7,000 pounds more oh, gosh. when they finally get right. to the, the end. And then if you put in internal tanks in the middle to really get some some long range, like when we did the Transland, I had three in there. Hmm. And so we we filled up to over 20,000 pounds initially wow. uh, prior to startup and taxi and everything. Uh, so I would like to have more fuel because it's, blue, you know, blue water ops with the Navy. Mm-hmm. You're out on this, uh, this ship in the middle of the ocean. They want you to go find another ship that's 300 miles away. And then come back and, right. and you know, how tack ends are and just trying to find another ship at sea. You always kind of want a little more fuel. Yeah. And I, I wish we had that. Um, we talked about the pressurization. Oh, that would make life really great because <laughs> you could just go high all the time right. without having to put the mask on and, uh, and be sucking on oxygen. Mm-hmm. And the issue with carrying passengers. So... Oh. I can't take passengers above 13,000 feet without 
sure. oxygen for them, and I don't have oxygen. I only have oxygen for all the crew. Right. I have seven stations on the air, aircraft. So if I've got 25 guys in the back, and we didn't really talk about that that limitation. Well, I've got 20, uh, 25 seats in the back, so you have 24 Marines or uh, soldiers or, or passengers mm-hmm. plus a seat for your crew chief, and then you got three seats up in the cockpit. Two are for the, the pilots, certainly, and then you have a, a jump seat. You could have your other crew members sit in. But I, I can't take them very high. So that that gives me some limitations on what I can do. I can go to 13,000, but only for a couple of hours, and i got to bring right. it back down. And I'm on oxygen during that time. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, no, speaking of that, why don't we talk about the load limit, if you will, as far as, so roughly 20, two dozen Marines or well, whoever, and what about otherwise weight? And how does that compare to what you used to fly on the Sea King? Yeah, so um, on the it's it's a big upgrade from what I was flying in the late the late model CH forty six. That aircraft in Vietnam was was phenomenal in that it was very light and it could carry. It was designed to carry 20, 20 Marines mm-hmm. in uh, Vietnam. But then things changed and they they increased the fuel tanks on the CH forty six to give it more range because it was very range limited okay. in the Vietnam era. Uh, it was designed for short trips, you know. Uh, and so you doubled the size of the fuel tank. Well, that means your capacity. <laughs> That's for, right. For it's your, a trade-off. Yeah, your airframe got much heavier. Yeah. And uh, the years that I was flying it, 2007, 2011, uh, you're, on a really good day, you'd have about 7,000-pound useful load hmm. on a CH-46. Well, over to the Osprey now, your takeoff limitation depends on what kind of takeoff you're going to do. Okay. Because I can be sort of like an airplane for takeoff and use a runway, or I can do a vertical takeoff. So vertical takeoff, 52,600 pounds is your limit. Of total weight. Of total weight. All right. Airframe basic weight's roughly 36,000 pounds, a little bit less on most airframes. So you've got about 21,000 pounds to work with for a vertical takeoff. Now, uh, if I go to a a rolling takeoff where I'm using a runway, I could go 57,000, and then our NATOPs just open that window, that envelope up, to where I had an alternate max gross weight of 60,500 pounds, Hmm. which you used to only be able to achieve in the air. So you'd go up and take off heavy. You could take some more gas and get even heavier. But now we can take off from a runway at over 60,000 pounds. So we're talking 25,000 pounds of weight, useful load, hmm. potentially, that I can uh, tap into. So it's tremendously more. Gotcha. And uh, to just to talk to passengers real quick, the Air Force frequently takes their seats out. So that not only reduces airframe weight, but it means they can stack more guys in there and have them sit on the floor. Oh, really? And they clip in right. to the floor. So it's not uncommon for them to take 32 or 36 passengers. Okay. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, how about we're on to notoriety. Now, you already mentioned Transformers. I haven't watched any of those, but that sounds about right. Uh, I'm trying to think where I've seen it, and I just I can't come up with any, but, of course, I follow you know military aviation. Where else would the listener who maybe doesn't know what we're talking about have seen the Osprey either in the news or in Hollywood? Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood. I, and, <laughs> I, you know, what's at the cutting edge of, 
getting cool military technology and seeing what what we're doing in the military and then mm-hmm. taking it and transforming it and making it really fun is really in video games. Mm-hmm. So those video gamers out there, they know that they've seen this in uh, the, the the various video games. And I'm not a big video gamer, but <laughs> I know there's different yeah. uh, Call of Duty and there's you know and and uh, there's inspiration from. Osprey and sure. Tilt River technology into these wacky things, and you see it in Hollywood too. But the Osprey is in uh, a Battle LA, it's in Transformers. Um, one of the uh, uh, well, what was the Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, movies where he was the uh, robot Terminator? Term, yeah, one, I'm sorry, one of the Terminators uh, features an Osprey and they jump out of an Osprey and into the water and go join up with a submarine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that was number, like, four or five. Yeah. I, know, I lost track. I, I think Christian Bale was in yeah, that one. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the Osprey's in there. And uh, then uh, other movies, if you watch Avatar, they've taken this kind of idea. Right. It's got this thing with uh, ducted fans mm-hmm. flying around, taking off vertically and flying <laughs> fast. And it, it's just that idea is all yeah. over the place in there. And then... You know, uh, the the Osprey is uh, certainly, uh, we talked a little bit about it from around the year 2000, had some crashes that, you know, really got got everybody thinking, oh, my goodness, what is this right. thing and is this thing safe? And so the good press from Hollywood and this cool thing in video games, and then there's the reality, which, you know, you have, anytime you have a crash, everybody questions, is the thing safe? And we had a couple in 2000 out in Arizona, but since then, what I would say is, we there were some issues in testing mm-hmm. the aircraft, just like any airplane, sure. where, you, where you have a lot of issues, and we worked through those and figured out where there were where where there were weaknesses in either the software, or the hardware, or whatever we were doing, the training for the pilots. And it's really been ironed out. And the truth is, and even though there are skeptics out there, the truth is the Osprey is one of the safest aircraft in <laughs> naval aviation, believe it or not, with the fewest crashes and deaths Knock over away. the course of its history. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, I take it the pilots don't have ejection seats, right? Just a regular no, helicopter no. aircraft type seat. That that is absolutely correct. Okay. You, <laughs> you would yeah. want to bail and leave yeah. your two crewmen back there. Yeah, yeah. any uh, any aircraft that carries passengers for a living, you're uh, going to yeah. find that, and you yeah. you, you know that in yeah. your job. And um, C-130s, they have parachutes on C-130s, but they don't have ejection seats. Right. So, I I guess yeah. if you saw those guys running out the back with their parachute <laughs> on, I'd I'd be worried. Yeah. Um, and the same is for us. We do not uh, fly with parachute and. Uh, we do not have ejection seats, so there is a lot of incentive to fly that thing all the oh, way yeah. down. Like you own it. <laughs> and get everybody down safely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, Sweet Pea, we're just about done. Any good sea stories from your 1,600 hours, multiple deployments in the V-22? You want to Wait, the MV-22, I'll get this right. Uh, <laughs> you want to share with us today? Well, uh, you know, I've had a phenomenal career in the aircraft and a lot, a lot of great wins. And... So I'll, I'll leave you with, with some fun from, uh, you know, my time at, at HMX was a really, really fun time in uh, flying the aircraft. And there is nothing better in the world than having airspace to yourself, like a <laughs> TFR, you know, a presidential right. TFR, and uh, flying at, at low altitude, mm-hmm. high speed across New York City, 
Chicago or LAX. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess without incriminating myself too badly, but um, uh, I, I was able to do a, a lift where we were coming out of uh, Dodger Stadium's uh, parking lot in LA. Whoa. And so that's where the pickup point was, and we're returning back to LA. LAX. LAX, okay. LAX specifically. Air Force One is over there. And we've got to pick them up. And I've got to shoot across town, but the the way things work is you, you got to be able to get there. And we're carrying the staff and the press and all, all the kind of entourage that mm-hmm. travels with, uh, with a VIP on our aircraft. And we take off last, but we have to land first and be shut down with everybody disembarked mm-hmm. before... Uh, POTUS gets there, and that's a big challenge. You gotta, so we have to leverage the speed of the aircraft and do that. And it, it was a challenge everywhere we went: New York, Chicago, L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were in Minnesota, if we were in Florida, wherever we were, because usually the distance was kind of short. But in L.A., it was really fun. We we came in, and typically they're shutting the airport down. So LAX, in this case, they've got you know four runways all going the same direction parallel. They had the uh, western runways or the south runways open, and they're bringing airliners in, and they mm-hmm. closed down. Well, if you were looking, uh, so the eastern runways are cr- closed down for us to come in and do our thing with POTUS. Mm-hmm. And so I'm booming across there, and my waypoint just happened to be in the center, and that's kind of where we were going was the far end by the beach right. of LAX on inboard, so kind of the center of the runway, and I'm just going as fast as I can at this. And they said, well, uh, the tower asked me, yeah, do you have the Airbus off your off your left side? I'm, like, oh, I'm flying formation off this Airbus who's <laughs> coming into land. Oh, you know, and I'm going I'm, to, I'm a little bit off. I got to make a turn and I'm kind of showing him the belly. That was really fun. And then, of course, going into Chicago, uh, you always deal with, uh, sometimes controllers don't know how to handle you because they think oh. you're a helicopter and you're coming in. I, I remember uh, Chicago O'Hare asked us, hey, keep best forward speed because they're working us in with airliners. Uh-huh. So, okay, well, best forward speed, and I'm doing 270 knots. That airliner is on final. He's not doing 270 no. anymore. <laughs> and I, I'm passing, you know, a 737 off the right, and, uh, you know, over here there's an uh-huh. Airbus. And then the controller got it, and he said, okay, uh, can you maintain one eight zero for me? <laughs> so I can kind well, of match after up. the controller listens to this episode, then he or she <laughs> will understand a little right. better. But uh, yeah, that's awesome. So just explaining briefly, because I do spend a lot of this podcast uh, talking about acronyms. So anywhere the president or vice president flies is a temporary flight restriction, right? A TFR. That's right. So that's so that Fred and Joe and their little Cessnas and Bonanzas don't just go bebopping around too close to the uh, the big guys. That's very okay. right. And that, right. that keeps all the little guys out there from mm-hmm. uh, being in the way or looky-loos right. looky or right. anybody with malintention. Yeah. yeah, well, that's and that's important, yeah. too. And that's really how you separate, right, the them, uh, although sometimes you do get the knucklehead who doesn't uh, know it, and that's on them, and they can lose their certifications and all that. And then POTUS, simply the president of the United States. Awesome. All right, buddy. Well, what's the future hold for you? I mean, you're still active duty. Thank you very much. Yeah, I uh, appreciate that. Well, it's uh, it's a bright future. Uh, we're in a community that's growing and mm-hmm. it's, and it's still fairly young. Um, I I was uh, selected to lieutenant colonel 
in January of this year. So what's next for me? Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, command, uh, hopefully. So put in for that. We'll wait maybe later this this year, towards the end of the year, I'll find out if going to command. Uh, for the moment, keep flying as long as possible. <laughs> Stay in the squadron and fly. Yeah. Uh, maybe get a command, and then I uh, planning to retire and moving on to something else in aviation okay. after twenty years. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll have to keep in touch with you and see how that goes. Of course, you have an active family life at home, right? You got a bunch of boys like I do. We need to get our families together. I think we should. Yeah, <laughs> I've got four four boys. Wow. Uh, bless my wife. <laughs> She's a single mom with five boys, yeah, really, that, right? <laughs> that's really how it is. And, you know, you, you got to give them credit oh, with yeah. all the deployments that we do in the military and everything, yes. that all the away time on trips and training and whatnot. They're they're really holding out that fort. Yeah. And I've got four of them. i got a three-month-old that's my youngest. So I'm a very busy dad when I go home because <laughs> my wife just needs a break. Oh, yeah. man, that's great. Are you in a deploying squadron now? I am. So uh, we're a reserve squadron, but we do deploy. We okay. we did a deployment for the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis okay. Response Africa in 2017. The, the unit did that, and they are scheduled to go back out again in 2021. So uh, because it's a reserve squadron, the time between deployments is a little bit longer, but okay. they are right there in the rotation, mm. giving that active component a break. And the next unit I go to will probably be doing the same thing. How many total deployments have you done? So I've done three. Uh, I got a little bit of a break when I did the transition okay. for the Osprey. And then at HMX, uh, I was on the road a lot, but not deploying in a gotcha. traditional sense. But I did uh, the 15th MU twice and the 13th MU Marine Expeditionary Unit right. once on uh, USS Peleliu for right. two deployments, and uh, which is no longer active. <laughs> It's yep. been decommissioned, and then the USS Boxer. So you had some Navy appreciation. Were those roughly six-month deployments or longer? Uh, yeah, six, seven, and eight months, respectively, wow. with okay. uh, the full workup period of about six to mm. seven months of uh, building up and training with the Navy yep. uh, prior to going out on those deployments. So, at you know, as a Marine, when I, as a captain, I had more than two years of at-sea time, which was quite a bit of at-sea time <laughs> for a Marine officer. Mm-hmm. It's a company grade. And I felt pretty good about that, and I was I was good. <laughs> I, I didn't need more, necessarily. Awesome. All right, and you know the deal, Sweet Pete. What is the deal with that call sign? <laughs> so I don't know. I'm guessing you didn't give it to yourself, but no, it certainly could be worse. How did someone come up with Sweet Pete for Josh Smith? Well, if uh, any of your listeners have uh, been involved in marine aviation uh, and have gone to the weapons tactics course or know anything about uh, – that course out in Yuma, they may have heard of this thing called the Shredder Board. And okay. it was developed by a person with a call sign, Shredder, who was my CEO on my first deployment. And Shredder, he's a, he's a great guy, uh, very tactical CEO. So okay. he had been uh, a department head out there teaching at the weapons tactics uh, instructor course for the Marine Corps. And... Uh, you know, he expected a lot out of us. And I was a schedule writer for him on a Mew deployment. So on the ship, there's a lot of moving pieces. You have four different type of aircraft that belong to the squadron, and you're dealing with deck cycles and all this stuff going on to where it's just a nightmare when you're trying to write that schedule. Like you're, <laughs> you got to find so many pieces of information, put this puzzle together, and get it signed by 
four different people, mm-hmm. the last one being the CEO, and they all have to be in agreement that this is the right thing to do for the next day. And sometimes you'd start working on this thing at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and you you wouldn't be done until 2200 at night, sometimes much later right. for uh, for guys. And I have utmost sympathy for them because it, it was a tough <laughs> job. First two years in the squadron, I did that. Um Anyway, so fast forward, we're on deployment, and we get to the K-Court. And Shredder, who, uh, very demanding guy, but great guy, very tactically uh, proficient, he he gets up, and I have no idea what my call sign is going to be because all kinds of silly stuff has been sure. thrown out there. But he says, you know, this guy embodied the spirit of uh, some of these great guys that we had in, in the past, and Every good squatter needs a, needs a, a, a sweet pea, and so he may. And I was I don't know what you're talking about, but um, I had to get smart on it because he said, "Hey, so this guy's always really happy when he brings me the schedule. He's got a smile on his face. He helps everyone out, and he's the right guy to get this call sign." So my call sign is a little bit of a memorial, which is a lot on my shoulders to carry that. Okay. Uh, we had a uh, a marine aviator named Sweet Pea Aubin, who the the initial push into Iraq in 2003 uh, crashed in a CH-46 and died. Um, but he was this guy that would give you the shirt off his back, mm. right? Yeah. And to this day, at the weapons and tactics course, which goes twice a year in Yuma, there is an award, the Sweet Pea Aubin Award that is given to the guy in the class that is just the team player that helps everybody out, that has the best uh, attitude and everything. And uh, so to be named after that guy, I think, is a lot on my shoulders. I've tried to tried to wear it well. And um, also it was mentioned Sweepy Sturdivant, who had been a CO at the squad, my first squadron as well, and later became uh, commanding general of the wing. Huh. And a uh, really great man as well. So that's the serious side and the not so serious side of it as uh, call signs kind of, you know, evolve uh, over time. But I, I really appreciate that I was I was given that honor, I guess, of being sweeping and carrying that <laughs> legacy on. But well, that is a tall order to fill. It is. It is a really tall order. As I transitioned to the Osprey, um, learned a lot. So uh, and we're really going a different direction here, but. One thing that we did a lot when we flew helicopters is sometimes you you land and like guys got to go out and they got to take a leak once in a while, you know. <laughs> so you do what your calls. Yeah, you do what you call the stub wing check. You get out there and you kind of go to the back of the helicopter and you you do do your business because you've been flying for a few hours and you gotta you gotta sure you gotta go. So here I am as a junior Osprey guy. I'm pretty fresh out of school. I'm a captain. I've got a lot of experience overall, but not a lot in the air, aircraft. And I get out there, and people have told me, don't do that. you got to get away from the Osprey because the downwash is pretty significant, <laughs> oh, <no>. right? <laughs> and I'm out. we're out in the desert in California, a place called Holtville. It had uh, a really strong wind out there that day. I think it was gusting, like 30 knots. Really strong wind. So I'm thinking, well, I could go really far away, but if anyone has relieved themselves in a really windy situation, it just can be a mess. So I'm thinking I can hide kind of behind the aircraft here and do this. 
And uh, that was a really bad idea. <laughs> Should we suffice to say it didn't end well? It did not end well. Okay. And uh, the rotor wash from, you know, stirring up all this air plus the wind made this go all over. And I was at the time a, f- a flight line OIC. So I was the officer in charge of the flight line or power line shop, which is your engine mechanics and your crew chiefs that, uh, are there and they are watching this go down and just laughing at me. <laughs> and I remember getting back in and they didn't let me live it down either. They were like, Of course, sir, this is why they call you sweet pea because you just sweet peat all over yourself. <laughs> and uh, it was true. I it, it was a it was embarrassing <laughs> and a pretty messy situation. Yeah, as I, yeah. the wind caught that, all right. I was wearing it for the rest of the flight. Well, so just to be accurate, when we list you on this episode, is it sweet P E A or P E E? Well, <laughs> accurately, it is P E A. But right. uh, they, my uh, my crew chiefs that worked for me, certainly had a lot of fun oh, with I'm that sure. for a few years while I was in that squadron. No doubt, yep. I'm sure. All right. Well, Major, sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Select, Josh Smith, Sweet Pea, I want to thank you for your 16 years of service to this country and for raising a wonderful family and for your three deployments and for spending an hour with us today talking about the V-22. I know the listener appreciated it. I certainly learned a lot. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Jello. It's been great. Awesome. All right. Let's get out of here. All right, Jella. Well, dude, love hearing Sweet Pea there in the interview. And, and I got to admit, I think that to hover is truly divine. So what did you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, I wondered about Sweet Pea's war face because as a Marine, <laughs> he's supposed to be a killer. And uh, he seems like a pretty nice guy, family dude. And uh, anyway, thanks again, Josh Smith, for coming on the show, being a good sport. And, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I learned a lot about the MV-22. I didn't realize it had been around so long. I still think of it as relatively new. You, you know what? And you, yeah, great point that you guys kind of fleshed out in the interview there. Because that, that program, there was a lot of stop, stop and start drama of the program itself. And the real casualty of it is they didn't explore the flight envelope very well. So when he talked about its uh, FOC or IOC, it was kind of initial operational capability, for operational capability. It was about 2007, right? Is that what he said? Mm-hmm. Somewhere I think so. Yeah, and then, but they had just kind of basically just gleaned the flight qualities. They just started to learn the flight qualities. So I think once it went fully operational, that's when they actually continued to explore. And it was kind of a test bed even in the beginning until I think the full realization is probably now. So totally get mm-hmm. it that people you know, haven't really seen it a lot until now, at least me. Well, and it's still coming into focus, if you will. Yeah. Certainly that is the case with the CMV for the Navy. So Absolutely. Yep. It's got a rosy future ahead. Well, that's cool. I really enjoyed that interview on the Osprey. And we do have some new terms, POTUS and Kazavac and a few others. We'll throw those on the glossary, as we always do. And do me a favor, by the way. If you use the glossary, let me know. Because before we hit record here, Sunshine and I were talking about it. Does anyone really use that? So if you do, let us know, and we'll, we'll keep it going for you. So. All right. Well, let's see. Sunshine, we've got some patrons who are supporting us, I want to mention. And we've upped the level now, so we're only talking about strike leads and above. Let me tell you who they are. That's Jesse Rudd, Tim William, Jamie Ledbetter, Austin Wright, and Wadha Al-Talji. And if you remember that name, he actually stepped up from a lower level before. Yeah. Sunshine, who do we have for new mission commanders? Yeah, I think I mispronounced Wada's name earlier in an episode, so thank you for stepping up there. And a new new mission commanders, we have Daniel Miller, Lindsey Dalton, and Steve Pritchard. So thank you for that. And how about air bosses, Jello? 
Air Bosses, Andrew Fergala, and Bill Horvath. Now, Bill Horvath, by the way, I've mentioned his name on this show a few oh, times. Oh, yeah, that's He was right. our very first Air Boss ever last year. He stepped up for a month or two and then stepped down a little bit. And we get it, folks. You've got other things to do. That's a pretty big commitment. We certainly do appreciate it, and it helps keep the lights on for the show. But big thanks to Bill for stepping back up. And everyone at the mission commander and above level gets a debrief. And I just want to tell you, Sunshine, today I had a chance to speak with Lindsay Lindsay, I'm not sure how she okay. pronounces it, yeah. but a uh, nice young lady down in Texas. Oh, okay. She was in the Air Force for a while, now works on F-16s on the avionics, ah. and has hopes of getting back into the Air Force as a pilot once she finishes nice. her college and maybe flying F-16s. So we're helping out that next generation of up-and-coming aviators. Yeah, best of luck, Lindsay. That's a great, great strategy you got going. For sure. All right, Sunshine. Well, we're about out of time. I want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So I think that'll do it for this week, Sunshine. What else do you got before we head out? Nothing at all, Jello. Just it was a great interview. Look forward to next episode. And uh, what do we always say? Let's get out of here. All right. See you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Check us out at our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.